0: The out of People biscuit take my hour yes, It said you can't handle the truth But that ain't so. How do I know I was there too? Hi everybody. This is Matt Gorley, and more importantly, this is I Was There Too, the show where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history, and even more importantly, this is the 46th episode of this podcast, which means we're getting close to episode 50, which means I've been putting my feelers out for some of my favorite ideas for movies to talk about for this show, all culminating in something I hope might be kind of special for episode 50, even if that doesn't necessarily mean a guest. What does that mean? You're going to have to stay tuned to find out. But today, Potter Smith from one of my all-time favorite James Bond movies, Diamonds Are Forever. It's a campy, delicious treat. It's like a big bowl of ambrosia. Potter doesn't normally do interviews. In fact, I reached out to him long ago after reading that he lived in South Pasadena. I live in Pasadena, and I thought, hey, maybe I'll just drop this guy a line, jaunt on over there. We'll be fast friends. But I never heard back, and I can't blame him but it just so happens out of pure coincidence. My old college friend, Rachel Mays, is his goddaughter. She, I guess, maybe listened to the podcast or saw that I posted about it or something and got in contact with me. And I'm glad she did because she's, uh, well, made a small dream come true. In fact, it was a really fun interview. I went over to his house, just like I mentioned, in South Pasadena. And we sat out on his back veranda and the birds were chirping and the trash trucks were blaring, but it was a relaxed atmosphere, and we dig in and take our time, and he tells me all about his career as a jazz musician and session musician on a lot of great songs, like You've Lost That Love and Feeling, and tells me a little bit about working with uh, Thelonious Monk and even Phil Spector. It was a great interview. He played Mr. Kidd, one half of the famous duo, and lover Two, the other ruthless killer in this duo, Mr. Wint, in this film, he wasn't an actor before he had done this, and didn't do a ton of acting after. So it was a unique experience worth hearing about. We're going to go ahead and get started, but before we do that, I want to say that you should definitely get tickets for the Now Hear This Podcast Festival, October 28th through 30th. On the 29th, I will be doing a live version of this show, and my guest will be none other than Mark Maron. We'll be talking about his famous fight scene role in Almost Famous. We'll be talking about his show, Marin, And probably if either of us have it our way, we'll just talk about our cats. I really think it's going to be a blast. I'm really very excited to have Mark as a guest. And also, my other show, Super Ego, will be there. I will be a guest on... Uh, another podcast or two. You can buy one day tickets. You can buy full three day tickets. You can buy it all, and it's going to be worth doing. Go to nowhearthisfest.com to find out more. All right, enough business. Let's get into the podcast interview, and then we'll take a break later for more business. The film Diamonds Are Forever. The year 1971. The role Mr. Kid. The actor Putter Smith. Well, Puttersmith, you are primarily a jazz musician. You've played with the likes of Thelonious Monk, Art Blakey, Marlene Dietrich, and Burt Bacharach. How did it come to pass that you ended up acting as one of the two lethal hitman lovers in Diamonds Are Forever?
2: Well, uh, it, it was uh, freaky. Uh, <laughs> I was pl- working at Shelley's Manhole, which I, at that time I was working at quite a
0: bit. Where's that?
2: Uh, it was on, in uh, Los Angeles on Cahuenga. It's no longer there. It was owned by Shelley Mann and who was a great benefactor and a great musician. And uh, he, uh, uh, the director came in, I was working with Thelonious Monk. Which was pretty much the high point of my life. And, The director came in, and I believe at one point on a break, he asked me something, the director, but I I don't know if I'm creating a phantom memory.
0: This is Guy Hamilton, the director of Diamonds of Forever. I
2: didn't know him. I didn't know a name. I I wasn't into film at all, except I was a civilian fan. You know, like I loved the Bond movies and uh, uh, stuff like that, but I wasn't. I wasn't into
0: directors
2: or anything like that.
0: Did so. he introduce himself as someone who was directing the next no, Bond? He didn't no, give no, you no, no clue.
2: Nothing at all. Just a just a person, and I'm and I don't even know if that, if I'm making that up. <laughs> you know what I mean? It might be a phantom memory. Yeah, but I I, can I, I just have a picture of him standing there uh, in the back room, back end of Shelley's manhole, and anyway. Uh, So about three months later, I get a phone call asking if I was a bass player with Thelonious. And I said, yeah. And they said, can you come to Universal tomorrow? And sure, you know, I've done all... Yeah, as a musician, you do all sorts of odd things. And I thought maybe they needed a bass track or they needed a a sideline bass something, you know. Uh And I asked, should I bring my bass? And they said no. And so I went down and... uh, um, here's this office, you know, and here's these guys and Guy Hamilton sitting there and, and they hand me a script and, uh, uh, I can't believe it. I'd never have it acted in my life and, uh, never had a, a desire to. And, uh, my wife was an actress at the time and going out and doing auditions and such like that. And, uh, so I would help her read scripts, you know, and, and so I knew how to read a script, but. (laughs) <laughs> so they said, read this part. And uh, so I I read it, and they laughed, and they said, well, there will be a screen test. I said, well, I can't believe this, you know. I mean, this is, like, I was laughing. This is hilarious, you know, James Bond movie. And so uh, they called me, and I did a screen test with uh, Paul Williams. Yeah, I read that. And I knew Paul already. And, uh, uh, Paul, what do we do, you know? And, and he said, just... Uh, he told me how it went, that there's, I can't recall now, but I think something like a, a bell rings, and then that, like a school bill, and uh, then somebody says speed, and then
0: that's it. It isn't lights, camera, action. Mean, you're looking for him to guide you through literally the basics of how a screen test goes. You, you, I
2: didn't even know what to do at right, all. Yeah. You know? And what they said was they, want us, they had us on a stage, and they said, step out from the curtain and laugh you know uh-huh. i mean that was <laughs> and uh, so i'm uh, uh so uh, we step out and uh uh paul who's you know a good actor and a really great guy uh he's laughing he's laughing his ass off you know and and i'm standing there uh, like moving my mouth and my head up and down <laughs> as if i'm laughing not making a sound Uh-oh.
0: Why is that? Do you think you just... I
2: just didn't have anything. I didn't know how to make a laugh, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm nervous and... Uh, so anyway, that was that, and the next next thing you know, and then uh, I believe they, Paul Williams, they couldn't agree on a price, and so they got this guy, Bruce Glover. Yeah. And uh, so that was... Uh, we're off and running, and I didn't even know the character was gay. And uh, so... Uh, <laughs> The night before, they sent a script over. You know, the night before we left to shoot the first scene in Vegas, get on the plane, shoot the first scene, and, and uh, so I'm I'm pretty like, wait a minute, these guys are gay, you know.
0: And uh, <laughs> what yeah. was it? Was it the stage direction where they take each other's hand that? Yeah, yeah, you in on yeah, that? That? yeah. That,
2: that, and uh, and later on, uh, I say she looks good for for a girl. And, yeah, but uh, uh, now you know, people will say, you know, I have a lot of, I have Jewish friends, you know, or whatever, you know, but you know, I, 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 I did have, you know, dear gay friends, you know, and I'm not, you know, I mean, not any kind of a homophobe, but I don't want, I didn't, I was kind of bent out of shape that I, they thought i looked like one, you know, of course now, you know. Yeah, we're just watching a show on Barney Frank. So, what what does one look like? But uh, that bit, that turned me around for a minute, and then and then I was while I was in Vegas doing the scene. I there was a thing in Time magazine about Rex Harrison and uh, Richard Burton doing a movie where there are a couple of gay hairdressers, and I thought, well, if they can do it, I yeah. can do it <laughs> and, uh, but it it does affect uh, people, uh, you know, people I knew it was. It, was a little strange, but I was—I ne- never had any problems about that. But. Did
0: you and Bruce Glover discuss that in terms of your characters' relationship and how that would affect the no, portrayal? No, we,
2: we never—we uh, never discussed any anything like that.
0: Really, even in the tone of the character, because it's an never. eerie and interesting tone. You just went straight for it, huh?
2: No, I went. My wife said, uh, "She says, you know, just be yourself. Just, just be yourself. You know, like do that stuff as if it's you doing it, and not try to act like." big queer you know yeah definitely uh, um uh, just be yourself and uh so that's what i did you know and she would when they would send the sides out you know she would work with me the night before and uh go through the scene until it was natural you know and that's i mean as far as my performance in the film since that time i've become a i've become a real movie fan not to the extent of one of those critics, you know, where I see every movie made, but, uh, I, I pay attention to the, all the credits, the writers and the directors and, uh, pick up on actors and look them up on IMBD. I when I see a actor that impresses me, you know, and, and, uh, gained a tremendous respect for, for the, for the real great actors, the ones that can really take you somewhere. You yeah. Know? And, uh, and so a couple of years ago, I, I watched my movie again, and, and I, I thought, oh, my God, you brought nothing. You brought, you brought nothing, you know, nothing, you know, like you're just standing there just, you know. like.
0: A, but if I may speak for you, the, the minimalist performance that you give is one of those ones where the viewer is able to apply what they want to that and in its own way is very effective. True, know. true. Whether that was intentional or not, I don't know, but it works. No, no,
2: I, have no, I had no <laughs> technique or no anything. All I had was myself.
0: It's interesting and, that you're paired up with Bruce Glover, who I don't know him, I've never met him, but from interviews I take him to be someone who really digs into that stuff and is very serious and a bit peculiar, and I, I just yeah, wonder. Yeah,
2: he's, he's, he's a real, real actor, you know, and uh, I mean, that's what he does. And um, uh you know but you know, he left me alone and uh, <laughs> you know we kind of uh, I had some real nice the, the I don't remember his name but the guy that played the dentist in, the, the, in yeah. the very beginning of the movie he the one you kill yeah the night the night we got there we didn't start shooting the day we got there it was the next day and uh, I met him the night before and he was a really wonderful guy and he pulled some stuff out of his uh, wallet you know like words to live by kind of stuff and it was beautiful you know i don't remember what they were but but the uh one thing guy hamilton said to me uh he said i said you know i've never acted i don't know you know i have no idea what to do. And he says but you but you know uh some you know how to perform yeah you know you know how to be in other words you know how to be yourself so i guess that was his confidence and uh uh, so he he rarely, he never told me what to do except to uh, when I was standing under the helicopter, I was hunched over. <laughs> you know, gee, they're really close. Those blades are about 20 feet in the air, you know. <laughs> but I said, stand up straight. You know, I was afraid to. uh
0: Well, you have uh, quite a tall posture, and it's interesting that they would have chosen Paul Williams initially, that they were clearly going for some odd couple contrast.
2: I guess so, and maybe that's what what didn't work out, but uh, uh, I never asked Paul about it, but... uh... I kind of, it was kind of indicated to me that it was about money. That's
0: what I had heard too, yeah. Yeah. It's funny, did you ever see Smoking the Bandit? Because he ends up in a pairing with Pat McCormick, who's very tall. No. And it's almost like that was what this would have been. Yeah, Yeah. well, in matching suits and that sort of thing. I
2: would really have loved to have uh, been hanging with him. He He was a really, really nice person, good person.
0: Seems like it. Yeah. I read once that Bruce Glover said that. He had fooled Sean Connery into making him believe that you guys were actually lovers, and that once he Connery saw Bruce Glover on a flight flirting with a girl later on, and came up to him and said something like "You, you, you bastard, you son of a bitch," he thought you guys were gay all along. I don't know if that's a apocryphal story or. I haven't got the slightest idea. <laughs> How was it working with Connery?
2: How is Sean? Yeah, he, he's uh, even better than you would hope. Really. He's like, not only is that who he is, he's even better. He's, a, he's, he doesn't shoot you on sight, you know, but I mean, he's a kind guy, uh, very kind and, uh, but a real, real, a real man. I mean, I hate to say words like that, but, uh, you know, a real, a minch. Yeah. You know, and, uh, everybody, the crew and everybody just crazy about him. Really? Know? And me too. And, uh, and he played little drums. He had a drum set brought on the set one time. He was playing little drums. He was mad. You Did know? you play with him? No, I didn't. I didn't have my bass. Uh-huh. I had my. I bought a bass in London that I played for the next twenty five years, but but I didn't have it with me. And,
0: too bad. Yeah. I wish not. I'd known. What if you guys would have started up a duet?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, we've got to get a band, get, get a band together. Get it's not too late. Some musicians.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, this was the last of his Bond films before he did one in the 80s, but he was known to be quite weary of the franchise at this time. Did you ever get any sense of that? Never. No? No. no Consummate no. professional. No, he's uh, really great. Wow. Really great on set. Uh, he would,
2: since this people are be listening to this, uh, you know, he's putting on an English accent. You know. Right. He's, he's he Scottish. has a thick Scottish yeah. accent, like guttural. You yeah. Know, sounds like a goat, you know. <laughs> and I mean, he was raised in rural Scotland, you know, yeah. a farm. And and uh, so he would, uh, you know, my real name is Patrick. And so they had my name as Patrick, you know, and, and uh, uh, he would say to me uh, every time I was on set with him, which I don't know, was a dozen times, he'd say, Hiya Pat. How are they treating you? Are they treating you okay? Only it was hey you
0: hey, treating you. Treating you, okay? you
2: know, and I mean it was like wonderful, wonderful. That's this is Sean Connery.
0: <laughs> it's funny, you know, watching the film yesterday through for your scenes, you end up carrying Sean Connery multiple times. A lot of your scenes are just Hauling, you and Bruce Glover hauling an unconscious He's Sean Gunn. quite Connery. heavy. I can imagine, yeah. <laughs>
2: lifting him out of the trunk of the car, and I was like, wow,
0: man, I'm lifting Sean Gunn. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it must have been something, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, you it, say your name's Patrick. How did you get the name Putter?
2: Oh, I was called Putt-Putt as a child, which which was a little motor scooter. with uh-huh. called a doodle bug also, and it had a little two-cylinder or whatever they call those things, two-stroke.
0: Or yeah, two-stroke like. engine. He goes put put put
2: put put, and uh, I was always I've always been overweight, and uh, people said I look like uh, when we are playing baseball and I run the bases I look like a put put, <laughs> you know. So I was called put put until I was eleven, and then my buddy uh, Jim Jim Sullivan started calling me putter, and that was it's been putter ever since. And
0: that stuck, yeah. Uh, when you originally killed the dentist in that film. Bruce Glover drops a scorpion down the back of his jacket, but you guys also shot a scene where you drop it in his mouth. Yeah. Did they, they have th- the foresight at the time to shoot it both ways, thinking it yes. might be too grotesque? They shot something? it
2: both ways. They thought it was too hideous the other way.
0: Well, speaking of hideous, I want to talk about your death scene uh, where you get bro- <laughs> roasted to death while no, holding I w- two. I want to
2: talk about, speaking of hideous, I want to speak about your acting in general. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to go that far <laughs> i'm I'm a team putter for this film. I love it. you know, for my fortieth uh, birthday, my fiance threw me a surprise party, and everybody came dressed as bond characters and my sister in- law dressed up as you.
2: Oh, do you far want to see a picture? Out.
0: This is um in the she end must
2: be a rare beauty <laughs>
0: <laughs> She's incredibly creative. Oh my God, isn't that incredible? That is incredible.
2: Oh, my God. I'll K- put
0: that photo on please the send website. send it to me, okay? Oh, I will. I sure will. And
2: do you have a picture of her in normal?
0: Yeah, yeah. And
2: could you send me one of that of course, along yeah. along with it? Yeah. Yeah,
0: and this is my friend uh, Rob Schraub and Kate Freund that went as the duo as well.
2: And uh, who's who is he?
0: He's you as as Mr. Kidd, and she's Mr. Wint.
2: Well, Uh... uh one star.
0: <laughs> well, I'll send you a picture of Sarah.
2: Yeah, send me all that stuff, please. I'll use it on my album cover. <laughs>
0: so what was it like? I, I, I watched the film and I see your arms go up in flames, and I'm thinking that has to be great makeup on a stuntman, but then when I watch the documentary, that's actually you getting your arms burnt, right? Yeah. What was that like?
2: Well, I, I was, uh, I had complete faith in, uh, Guy Hamilton and, uh, Jill, uh, St. John was on the side there and we had been very friendly and, uh, she's, she was a terrific person and, uh, she's a, you know, there are, there are ladies that are like, kind of like natural musician type chicks, you know, that yeah. gravitate towards music and she's like that uh-huh. That's it. and, uh, not that that you know, I tell Robert Wagner not to worry; he's not in any trouble. <laughs> but uh, you know, she's just sort of a relaxed and understanding what's happening, and and so she's off on the side, and she says, "Is he getting hazard pay for this?" And uh, oh. and uh, they were like, everybody was looking at her like, "Shut the fuck up!" You know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, he should be getting hazard pay for this, you know. And, but my my thought was. Hey, you know, this is such an unbelievable thing. I'm, I'm just happy. I'm just. They didn't give you hazard pay for that? No, no. I mean, I didn't. What for?
0: Why? What? You know. Well, because your arms were both on
2: fire. Well, uh, yeah, I was on fire. and,
0: and It's uh, so close to your hair, too. That's the thing that scared me to death.
2: Well, uh, the scene was they wrapped my arms in asbestos uh,
0: cloth. Well, there's that a hazard pro- pay, That I right. probably should have got yeah, a hazard pay. No kidding.
2: Then they put that white thing on them, the white jacket, and then they put airplane glue uh, on on that, and they have it wired to, to a battery. And uh, uh, before they did this, they said, when we call cut, uh, step, step back and put your arms straight out. Don't put them up over your head. Just put your arms straight out. And they did a test run with two guys with the fire extinguishers, you know, and they did a test, complete test thing, you know, so... So then, uh, they do that when I, uh, uh, Sean Connery throws the, uh, brandy on me and it, it they click it and it ignites, you know, and I'm, I freak out, I freak out, you know, everything and then they yell cut and I step back and they put me out. Then they bring in, uh, the, uh, stuntman
0: uh-huh.
2: and, uh, he's much smaller than I, and he, uh, they had made a life mask and a latex life mask. And, uh, they had copper foil over the eyes and, uh, they had made a, a, a wig of my hair. And uh, so they had him dressed up and they had, they had also with me, they also had, uh, these large asbestos fake hands, which I wore. And, uh, so they put all that on him, and the, the second burning, then they, then they totally engulf him. So if you see the scene, you'll see that I catch fire back up, and then there's a headshot of Jill St. John, then they shoot back to to me. It's the stuntman, yeah. completely engulfed, and he runs off, and jumps over the side onto a pile of cardboard boxes. But the, uh, the uh, hands had become stiff from the first burning, and they broke when he hit the ground, and he was pretty seriously burned on his wrists. No kidding. We'd... But I think he was getting hazard pay. Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, I hope he's fine.
0: Would you imagine you were more nervous to do the fire hands or you're just your first take out there in the desert where you have to do acting for the first time?
2: You know, I was never. Nervous like that because my wife had said, "Just be yourself." Remember, they called you. You didn't present. You didn't present yourself as an actor.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, it's, the blame's on them.
2: So I, so I just, you know, this is it, guys. You know, I haven't got any more. You know, <laughs> and uh, Guy Hamilton was correct because of my. Uh, you know, I had been playing with with musicians, uh, performing all my life in all sorts of situations. You know. Boston Symphony Hall and dumps everywhere, you know, and it's all the same if you're, if you're a performer, you're always performing at the highest level that you can and uh, to do that you have to be uh, comfortable in your own skin and, and so that's, that's, I was able to do that, I was able to be just myself but I had no nothing to draw on technically, you know, like uh, how to conjure a Tears or anything like that, or I mean, you see these great actors, you know Javier Bardem, where he's a completely, utterly, totally different character in five different movies.
0: Both of you, Bond villains,
2: and and yeah, that, yeah. that you're in an elite club. Yeah, you know he. Uh, that's right. He's my colleague. <laughs> I never, I've never thought of that till
0: this minute. That's right. You know, I'll have to let him know. <laughs> you, Christoph Waltz. I mean, you, you're in some great company.
2: Well, I see, I was so ignorant, I didn't even realize the, the depth of the actors that I was in the movie with. Right. I mean, it's through the years when I watch these old English movies, and I go, my God, you know, and I didn't. And I the other day I was watching, uh, uh, was it the Lavender Hill Mob or, or one of those old Alec Guinness yeah. classics, you know? And they're the, the uh, assistant director, who is really the guy that's running the show, is Guy it's Hamilton. Guy Hamilton, yeah. Yeah, and I go, wow, you know? All that sort of, and speaking of assistant director, you know, uh, the guy, uh, he was great, the the guy on the Bond film, but Guy Hamilton took me over to, uh, Alfred Hitchcock was making a film on one of the other stages and, and introduced me to him. And, really? What was that like? Great. Fabulous. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, you know, he wasn't, we didn't have a conversation or anything, just met and shook hands. Wow. He looked me up and down, you know. Really? And, uh. <laughs> I've had several thoughts since then, you know, and that uh, I've seen some old uh, Hitchcock movies, and one where he's playing bass in, an, in a, in a, in a, you know how he's always in the scene yeah. somewhere, and yeah, this, he, he was playing bass in a pit band, and it was it was about my age at that time and kind of looked like me,
0: uh-huh.
2: and I thought maybe this was Guy Hamilton's joke to play on, maybe that's why he cast me because. I reminded him of what Alfred Hitchcock looked, and that this was his moment, you know. But you, you know how you, you create these scenarios that have no no connection to reality. But it, that would be a nice one.
0: That seems like Guy Hamilton's type of sense of humor. He seemed Does like it? he was in that in that kind okay, of thing. Yeah, you know. there is a whole thing in Diamonds of Forever where Sean Connery uses an alias of Klaus Hergesheimer, and it's solely because. Guy Hamilton would use that term for anything, a doohickey that he couldn't remember the name of. So he goes, oh, I'll just put the, the Hergesheimer there. And that sort oh, really? of thing. So they threw huh. it in the film. Okay. Yeah. So this was your first film. And then you went on to do a little bit more acting work. What uh...
2: I, uh, you know, I it's like for the first after first year afterwards, I kind of like, well, maybe, you know, maybe something will happen, you know, but you really have to go after acting, you know, and, and, uh, nothing happened. Then about 10 years later, a friend of my, my, one of my wife's acting friends, a friend of his was becoming an agent was looking for clients. And he mentioned me to him and he called me and said, I can get you some work. I said, great, why not? You know? And, uh, so he was sending me out on uh, things and I was getting, I was getting about every fourth one and i Wow, that's a pretty what good. What they rate. said was really, really kind of amazing, you know. And and uh, in the meantime, since between the time, uh, so listen here, actors, I'm going to tell you how to do it. <laughs> I had uh, there was a look here in South Pasadena cable, they needed people to make material from local to somehow, and so please make some films. And so we, I got into it with a group of six or seven people, and we were. Producing films and mostly uh, musicians, which I still have these really great little half-hour films. Uh, so we decided to do a uh, TV show, like a show, a comedy show, and uh, had an idea for it. And uh, it went so far as to cast, uh, put an ad in uh, Dramalog and Variety, one or the other, or both, I can't remember, casting. And so here I was in, it was functioning as a casting director, you know, and I'm sitting there and uh, the people are coming in and you realize you're not sitting there looking and trying to find something wrong. You're trying to find something right. (laughs) You're hoping that the next person is it. And generally speaking, when they come through the door, you know if they're it or not, you know, it's. Somebody like Dustin Hoffman or uh, Meryl Streep can jockey for a part that nobody thinks they can do and, and get it, you know, because they have the power. But, but a regular uh, working actor, uh, they have no—you're It's you're either right for the part in their minds or not.
0: Well, that goes back to Guy Hamilton back at the club. He saw something in you, and he just went, why mess around, I'm sure. Well, he,
2: he had the idea. and, and uh, So anyway, armed with that knowledge— when I would go out on, a, on an audition, I was not the slightest bit concerned. In the first place, this wasn't my thing. In the second place, I know that they either I was right in their mind or not, and that there was nothing I could do about
0: it. Yeah, that's liberating.
2: There was nothing I could do. Yeah, it's just it's liberating because you you really do not care,
0: and it frees you up to do a better job when you're not well, worried Well, I about guess it. Yeah. you
2: know. So I was getting getting these parts, you know, and I would get mad, you know. Feeling when you feel like you're being abused, like there'd be casting call, you get there and there'd be three hundred people. You go, this is bullshit. Yeah. Then another time, I got called for a Rocktoberfest, and it was they wanted an old guy, and they said, "Do you have a pair of leader hose?" oh yeah, sure, I've got like four. What kind? What color would you like me? Of course, I don't.
0: You know. You know it's get sad as I do. I do have a pair. So of
2: I. Uh, they say, "Well, show up. They may have a pair for you." Ah uh-huh, Jesus. You know. <laughs> So I, I, and it's, it was so inconvenient. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, my, my, at that time of my life, I was, my days were mapped out from beginning to end. This you know? is
0: exactly and, how I feel about it. And you have to drive across town and it just ruins your whole day.
2: It, yeah. It ruins a whole day. You yeah. Know? I've got my four hours of teaching in the morning. I have a rehearsal in the early afternoon. And then I have, uh, then I go home and I take a nap and then go to my gig, you know, I mean, cause I take naps every day and, and, uh, uh, <laughs> So they, they call you. Need to be at uh, you probably know the place, uh, it's near Laurel Canyon in uh, Ventura. It's a, some, some studio.
0: Uh, oh, was it CBS Radford? That, yeah, that's yeah, it. yeah, yeah,
2: okay. Be there at five o'clock, five o'clock. Oh. Perfect.
0: And where are you On living Friday? at the time? Here. Here in the east, yeah. yeah. Oh, god, I feel in, it.
2: In, in we've been in South Pass for 45 years, Ugh. and uh, so. I go, you know, and I'm pissed because I'm tired, you know, and it's my nap time and I open the door and there's 10 guys that look just like me, all wearing leader. Oh,
0: <laughs> well, now I want to talk about the real, I was there too. the work you've done as a musician worked with Thelonious monk. Was that primarily touring or also as a session musician? It,
2: no, it, no, it was just, uh, just live, uh, session musician is something, a total other world, you know, uh, Tony is true jazz giant, and he had come coming back from uh, a tour of Asia. And Bill Cosby had uh, paid for this for his bass player and his, his uh, tenor player to go to the Manhattan School of Acting. He was very generous to uh, to musicians. So they had to, and Monk got a, a last minute booking in San Francisco at the Jazz Gallery or Jazz Workshop, Jazz Gallery, Jazz Workshop. Thank you. Let's see. My mind is going... I was recommended from two completely different sources.
0: Independently?
1: Yeah.
2: Wow. And uh, so I got the gig, and I flew up to San Francisco, and uh, here I am, this 30-year-old white kid, you know, and uh, uh, I go down to the dressing room. There's no rehearsal, and there's no book. And uh, uh, But I love Thelonious. I mean, I just... But I never in my wildest dreams thought I would ever play with him. I never thought I would
0: meet him. You know? This is stuff, you were familiar with his work, so you were presumably performing things you knew or you were going in completely blind.
2: No, no, I was real familiar with his. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had transcribed some of his m- more complicated music and uh, and that was known by people and... and uh, I mean, there was, in those days, a lot of people really didn't like Thelonious, and I think probably still there are a lot of people that don't like him, but uh, to me, he was amazing. And uh, and he's one of those people, like when you're 13 and 14 and you have these people who are, they kill you, you know, they, they kill you, you know. Then when you're 30 and you've got a whole bunch of knowledge of other things, you hear them again, and they're not so good. And uh, sometimes you completely reverse your opinions about people. And, and uh, like, for example, I was mad about Dave Brubeck, you know. And I had transcribed his solo on a song called uh, Take the A-Train, and I was crazy about him. I couldn't stand, I was like, I, the alto solo was just something to wait for till Dave played again, you know. <laughs> and, and now, uh, Dave's playing uh, is not the highest on my list, although I feel that he's one of the finest human beings that ever lived. Is it just
0: because you can now, you can easily see how it's done? Well, I someone see it's, it's just
2: you know, whatever it is, but, but the alto player is one of my favorite oh, wow. players now, Paul Desmond. And that's, that's how it happens. But Thelonious, I started off by loving him. And as time goes on now, I've been listening to him for 64 years and it's, he just keeps getting better as i learn more and get more like i re, i learned uh, about 10 years ago 15 20 years ago i got into five tuplets okay and uh, and it, you know any musicians will know what i'm talking about you know triplets five tuplets and and then realize and then realize that he's his music is full of five tuplets and they're not it's not like sort of they're like real precise and uh, so, I mean, it's like you go, God darn, you know, whoa, he's I mean, so, so great. And his, his time and, I mean, his technique is amazing. There is a piano player that I, that I used to play with a lot who, who was a heavy session player and uh, could read anything. And, and uh, I got a copy of uh, some transcribed Thelonious Monk stuff with the with the complete piano part, you know, and I say, here, play this, you know, and, and he sits down, he looks at it, and he plays very confidently, he plays the first chord, he goes, bong, and then he's like, uh... Because <laughs> everything goes to a different place than ordinarily one goes, you know, he's just really original, but all very, very logical. It's not random. It's very, very logical, you know. Kind of like... uh I, you know, I think of creativity as is like a like a joke, like a good joke is the punchline is something that's very clearly an outgrowth of the build-up, but not what you expected. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. and uh, that's that's Thelonious. It's all very, you know, all the voice leading is very.
0: Uh, he's just marvelous. Anyway, I could listen to you talk about this all I day forget long. what what we started. I off did here. too. You were on the session for "You Lost That Love and Feeling" with the Righteous Brothers. Is that correct? That's right. Wow, what was that like?
2: <laughs> You're going to be very disappointed. Uh, I did a lot of that thing what they called the Wrecking Crew. I was, yeah, I was a sub
0: for the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, I really? Was a sub That's the, a great documentary. They yeah. didn't call them the Wrecking
2: Crew. I yeah, mean, that was we were just a bunch of guys, you know, and and uh, Phil Spector who. I mean, I, he's still alive, so I don't want to say, you know. But I mean, well, he, I don't think talk about him get like he's a anybody. genius. But uh, uh, anyway,
0: yeah. Wait a minute. No, i got to stop you. I want to hear his this. Secret,
2: his big secret, is big wall of sound was yeah. uh, uh, four guitars, four keyboards, four drummers, four bass players, four saxophone players. That was his big, big it, wall huh? of sound. And so he had four different bass players, a uh, dano electric, a guitar run, fender bass, and an upright bass. And so whenever any any of the people would take off the upright bass player would take their instrument and I would get I would be called to play upright bass ah. and so I did a great many of those things and i was i was at one point I was in sometimes doing as many as five sessions a week really not just with them but but that whole group of <coughs> people and it was real in, in to me very, very low uh class music and uh silly music like, you know bubblegum music and uh and one day I was in there and I I had about 3 years of that and then one day I was in there it was I think it was a share or Sonny and share one of those and somebody had written an arrangement that was interesting it had a James Jamerson kind of bass line like <laughs> you know real interesting baseline and uh, so they uh, they said can you simplify the baseline okay can you simplify it a little more you know and, and so can you simplify it a little more bing 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 that's it that's it which is the st- the standard stupid baseline for everything. Uh-huh. And uh and I at that point I went to myself, you know, this is not why I became a musician. And and I walked away from it. Oh. You know. And uh very easy to do because just like acting, it's a hustling business. Yeah. You know. I mean it's acting at the level of not being a star. Right. You know, where they're coming after you, you know. So I just I just stopped hustling and it was over. And uh then I had, and then I worked. I had a series of really good work. Uh, I worked with Johnny Mathis for a couple of years, and I was Mason Williams, bass player, for a long time. And he was the, the greatest of the greatest of people to play with. He was, as it was all pop music. But and uh, and then I began to get more back into jazz, which was my original thing. <laughs>
0: Well, Putter, it has been wonderful to talk to you about all of this. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Well, I've enjoyed it very
0: much. Thank you again very much, Putter Smith, and thank you again very much, Rachel Mays, for putting all of that together. I will post pictures of my soon-to-be sister-in-law dressed as Putter Smith's character, Mr. Kidd from Diamonds are Forever, as well as Robin Kate on the episode page for this show on earwolf.com. I also want to mention that I actually reached out to Bruce Glover, who plays Mr. Wint in this duo, to come on this podcast as well. And he responded to me, but, uh, well, he's Crispin Glover's father. So if you know anything about Crispin Glover, you can imagine that Bruce Glover might, um, how should I put this? Well, he's a little strange. And when I sat down to talk to Putter Smith, I actually sat down with his wife for a little while and had a wonderful conversation, and she was a little more forthcoming maybe than Putter was about their working relationship and how, well, let's just say Putter's a stand-up guy, and uh, she was telling me how he expressed that he was new to acting when he met Bruce Glover on the set, and Bruce Glover said something to the effect of, basically, I'll handle it. I'll handle your lines. I'll handle everything. And um, I think Potter was too much of a gentleman to say so. But in my email correspondence with Mr. Glover, let's just say that sounds like it might be in keeping. So if you know Bruce Glover out there, don't tell him about this. There's always someone that seems to want to run and tell people about these things. And he seems like a fairly dangerous guy. I'm not trying to defame him. I'm just trying to get the story straight for journalism, for cinema history, for mankind. But I also want to take a second to talk about a new book that is out. It's called Come Twilight, and it's written by Tyler Diltz. Now, this is somebody I went to college with. In fact, we acted together. He was Lenny in *Of Mice and Men, and I was the bad guy Curly, if you can believe that. So we'd have a fight where he crushed my hand that I was wearing a glove on that was full of Vaseline to keep soft for my wife. (laughs) That makes more sense if you've seen the play or read the book. Anyway, this book, it's a great detective series that takes place in and around long beach california but the best part is the main hero the detective himself danny beckett starts listening to podcasts throughout this entire adventure most significantly your podcast truly i was there too in fact i'm very excited to say it even becomes a bit of a like thematic idea throughout the narrative of this book is this the first time a podcast has done that i can definitively guess yes And the actual theme song lyrics to this podcast are the little lyrical introduction to the first page of this book, Napalm Smells Best in the Evening, It's Not Worth Believing What You Heard. So if you're interested in a detective novel about a guy who also listens to many of the same podcasts that you probably do, I highly recommend this. But on top of that, I'm almost done with it. I've got about 20 more pages left. I've found it a really engaging book. I also lived in Long Beach for 20 years, so it's really fun to hear some of the same restaurants and bars that I went to mentioned in this, much less the podcast. For instance, here's a passage from page 211. There were only a few episodes of I Was There Too that I hadn't heard yet. Soon I'd be relegated to new episodes like everybody else. That was my biggest complaint about podcasts. I'd find one I liked, binge listen to all the old episodes, and then when I was completely hooked, I'd be left to the whims of lazy podcasters who somehow think an hour every two weeks or so is an acceptable level of output. I take that as a personal dig, Tyler. I thought about fast-forwarding through the theme song so it wouldn't be stuck in my head all night, but then I realized that just thinking about skipping it had already planted the earworm. It's been said you can't handle the truth, but that ain't so. How do I know? I was there too. In bed, trying to sleep, I listened to Dwyer Brown talking about playing Costner's dad in Field of Dreams. Look, if that isn't a recommendation for a book, I don't know what is. You don't need Oprah to tell you that. It's called Come Twilight by Tyler Diltz. This is the real deal, available in all the book places like Amazon.com. All right, that's it for this week, but I do want to tell you, the three episodes we got coming, and if things work out as I expect they will with the 50th episode, not necessarily even a guest, I've got some glory in the pipe for you. (laughs) Glory in the pipe. Tyler, if you're listening, I'd love that to be the continuation novel to your detective series. If you can connect me with a guest... That is perfect for this show. Please email me at Iwasthere2pod at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at Matt and Instagram and Letterboxed. I'm also there as at Iwasthere2. Follow, and you'll learn more. Until next two-week, have a good two-week, everybody. A fortnight, a half-month, a one twenty sixth, a seven-day, a spring break, a really old fly's life. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.